Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 959. On this edition of the podcast, David Lorelo welcomes Blake Butera, manager of the Charleston River Dogs, low-A affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays. Butera is just 29 years old, and we hear about what it is like to manage at such a relatively young age, and his journey to the position. We also hear about a number of remarkable players and prospects that he's been able to get familiar with, including Brendan McKay, Tommy Pham, Taj Bradley, Curtis Mead, Cole Wilcox, Colby White, and more. We also get some insight into player development in the Rays system, and how they try to prepare their players in the minors to one day excel in the majors. It's best for us to put these players in different situations, whether it be, you know, we're not going to have just a set closer. We're going to have that relief pitcher throw in, in any type of role, because who knows where they're going to be in the big leagues. Being in low A in Charleston is a long way from the big leagues, and we, we don't want to bookmark a player as so-and-so is this. We want to give them opportunities to have success. We want to give them opportunities to fail, but we also want to be conscious of their development, keeping them safe, and also physically and emotionally in a good position. But before we get to this conversation, I must issue you my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the best place for you to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can pick up an ad-free membership for yourself or for a friend. This is the absolute best way to not only browse the site at blazing fast speeds, but also to help us set the site to keep doing everything we're doing. We truly appreciate your support. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Blake Butera, manager of the Charleston River Dogs, the low-A affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Blake, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Hey, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really enjoy all of your work and look forward to the conversation. Thanks, Blake. Uh, Check is in the mail on you saying you enjoy my work for sure. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we're going to talk player development and about some of the notable prospects that you worked with this past year. But I want to start a little bit with your your background. You know, for instance, uh, my daughter got her undergraduate degree at Boston College a few years ago, and she and I went to a baseball game there. I don't recall for sure if it was leading into her freshman year or the spring of her freshman year, but it would have been either 2014 or 2015. You were playing for the Eagles. I don't know if that makes me old or are you actually still really young? (laughs) That's a great question. Yeah, maybe both. Yeah, yeah, maybe a combination of the two. No, that's that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, obviously played at BC um, as you as you mentioned, and enjoyed my time there, and was fortunate to to play with some really good teammates and and coaches. Oh, you played with some outstanding players there. You know, BC is of course in the, in the ACC. I know that Justin Dunn was one of your teammates. Michael King, um, I believe, Chris Shaw. You only made it as far as short season ball, I believe, after you were drafted by the Rays. How long did it take before you realized that your path was not going to be the big leagues uh, as a player, but rather as a coach or manager? Well, the, the first part of that, I think I realized I wouldn't be playing in the major leagues pretty quickly. You know, when you get to professional baseball and you see what level that really is and, and the type of player that not only makes it to that level, but has success at that level, you kind of look around and evaluate yourself and evaluate the players around you and, and realize, eh, not sure if this is going to work out. Uh, in terms of coaching or, or managing, I really hadn't thought much of it that early on in, in my 
career with the Rays playing-wise. But it was something I wanted to do, whether it was at the college level, whether it was at the pro level. It was something I, I, I really wanted to be involved in the game, no matter what happened. And it wasn't until, I'd say, towards the latter part of the second year that I played where I, you know, it was mentioned by a couple people if I would be interested in coaching or, or what that may look like. And then it was interesting, you know, going into my third season, that off season, I wasn't sure what was going on. I wasn't sure if I was going to get released prior to spring training. I wasn't sure if I was going to be brought back to coach or, or scout or what the deal might be. But I went into spring training in 2017 and I was actually, you know, released as a player towards the end of spring training. And even though you kind of see the writing on the wall, it's still a, it's not easy ever getting released or told and you can't play baseball anymore. And actually, while I was up there, our farm director at the time, Mitch Lukovich, had me fill out some paperwork to begin the background process on myself to start coaching. And at the time, I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is real or they're just trying to make me feel better or what the case might be. But he was like, you know what? We want you to coach. We want you to stay here. We're going to put through this paperwork. It's going to take a week to go through. Go home, collect your thoughts, see your family, and then we'll, we'll connect again in a week. And at the time, I was like, ah, he might be blowing smoke up my butt. There's no way this is real. I go home and to the day, it was a Wednesday. That It was a, exactly a week. I get a call from Mitch and he offered me a job to come back and coach. And just like that is kind of where it got going. Yeah. Before we talk about, uh, you know, the coaching and the managing, Blake, let's circle back to when you did play at BC. You were a position player, so you faced some pretty nasty pitchers in, in the ACC. When you look back, who like really, really impressed you? Yeah, there were a lot of really good arms. And I know I'm going to miss several, but the first one that comes to mind was Marcus Stroman, his junior year at Duke. Obviously, just electric stuff. Besides that, there was an arm at, there were a couple arms at Virginia. There was Howard, the relief pitcher. There was a Howard at Virginia. And then there was also a starting pitcher from Virginia as well that, that pitched in the big leagues. I think he still might be pitching. Sorry, I'm having a hard time thinking about what pitchers I faced. It's been a while. No, that's, that's perfectly fine. But you did face great arms. And of course, you faced some fantastic arms in your short time, you know, playing in, in pro ball. With that in mind, you had Taj Bradley, Charleston this year. I know that comps aren't simple. You know, every pitcher is different. But who does Taj Bradley most remind you of? I don't know if it's fair to Taj, because he was, that was the best I've ever seen someone perform the time that we had him in Charleston. I mean, he dominated from start to finish until he went up to high, and he continued to do that in high as well. So it's hard to put a comparison on a guy like that with what he did, but the fastball is big. It's, you know, it's 95 to 98 that he maintains for five, six innings with with ease, little effort. His change up to lefties has come a long way. That's something I think we're most proud of in Charleston with our pitching coach, R.C. Lichtenstein, having him trust that change up to left-handed pitchers because he was mainly fastball secondary without a real change up. He didn't trust it. And just to see the strides that he took, really excited to see where he goes. He, his future is extremely bright. But it's hard to put a name comp on him of uh, maybe a big leaguer you know, that, that you have seen. Yeah, it is. It is. Have you seen him pitch much? I have actually not seen seen him. We actually had Taj as a guest on the podcast this past summer, but outside of maybe a quick video clip or two, you know, that is about it. Did he give himself a comparison? I don't believe I asked him. 
<laughs> you know very well that as much as coaches and managers hate to comp uh, players, players hate comping themselves even more. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned Blake, you know, uh, Bradley doing really well after he got promoted. Another pitcher that, that you had who got promoted fairly quickly was Colby White. I looked up his numbers and uh, he was even better in Charleston than, than I realized. In 11 relief appearances, he had 36 strikeouts in, in 16 innings. I mean, that that is power stuff, right? Yeah, he dominated. Man, if you look at the year that Colby White had from starting in low A in Charleston to finishing in triple A with Durham. I mean, his stuff is electric. It's it's the fastball plays up, the slider's gotten a lot better, and he attacks. He doesn't walk hitters either. And I think that's what, what really helps him on top of the stuff is that he's always ahead in the count. Yeah, what about Cole Wilcox? He ended up having Tommy John surgery, but you did have him f- for 10 or 12 starts. Yeah, it was really unfortunate to lose Cole. Just as a teammate, and obviously his performance on the field. He kind of had the heavy sinker that was, you know, 94, 95 with a really good slider. And he threw the slider in any count. Uh, that's what, what his biggest thing was that helped him was, you know, he had that good two-seam fastball, but his slider was, was really, really good. And he threw it. It didn't matter what the count was. He really trusted that pitch. And those are three talented young pitchers w- with outstanding arms, and they're far from the only ones in the system. You know, without giving away the secret sauce, just how did the Rays do such a great job of developing young pitchers? Is that an answerable question? Yeah, it is. And I'm going to, I'll probably beat around the bush a little bit, but I'll give you what I can. Yeah, I think we do a very good job collectively. We do a very good job collectively. That starts from the scouting side of things, the amateur scouting, where we're, you know, we're, we're seeing these players right away. We're evaluating them. We see what they do well now and what they can do. And then once they get into our system, from the top down, from the front office to the coordinators to the coaches, we do an outstanding job of, of not overlooking anything or anyone. You know, we know what a player does well, and we know what a player needs to add or maybe make an adjustment to. We just really, really – we have a lot of people in the organization that really care, and no one's going to get missed over. No one's going to get passed up. And I think that that really adds up. And over time, you see these these pitchers and not only pitchers, but position players as well, just get better and better as they move up through the system. And it's really fun to watch. And what exactly, Blake, is your role in pitching development or even hitter development? Is As a manager, you certainly have a lot of responsibilities that aren't necessarily hands-on in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a manager in the minor leagues, I believe that it's best for us to put these players in different situations, whether it be, you know, we're not going to have just a set closer. We're going to have that relief pitcher throw in, in any type of role because who knows where they're going to be in the big leagues. Being in low A in Charleston is a long way from the big leagues, and we, we don't want to bookmark a player as so-and-so is this. We want to give them opportunities to have success. We want to give them opportunities to fail but we also want to be conscious of their development, keeping them safe, and also physically and emotionally in a good position. And that, that's the same, in my opinion, for the position player side as well as the pitcher side. For the position players, we're not just going to hit a player, or I'm not just going to hit a player three in the third spot the whole season. Let's move them around. Let's see what they can do. Let's challenge them a little bit. They're not only going to play second base the whole season. Let's move them around and see what they can do. I think just the more experience we can give a player in different areas, the more they tell us what they can and can't do and the more comfortable they get. 
Yeah, it is well known at the big league level that at least for most teams, the manager is going to be in conversation with members of the front office on pretty much a daily basis, not to the point that the front office is making out the lineup per se, but there's a lot of input on what they're looking for. How does that dynamic work in the big leagues as far as playing time, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think you've you've kind of seen as of the you know the last three or four years, players aren't really playing every day as much. Um, it's more about saving their legs, putting them in positions to succeed, and and getting hot towards the end of the year and, and making that postseason push with healthy players. You don't see the Cal Ripkins anymore. You don't really see the Derek Teachers anymore. Sure, there's a handful of those guys that are going to play almost every day, but the majority of players now are going to have a day off here and there. And I think one that is to make sure they're healthy the whole season, all 162. But also on top of that, a lot of it depends on matchups. You know, who we're facing that night, where we're playing, what time's the game. There's a lot that goes into that. And I think we do an outstanding job of putting our players in positions to have success. And are those decisions made uh, pretty collaboratively as opposed to the front office saying, you know, Blake, just do your thing? Yeah, I, to be honest, I have the autonomy to do pretty much whatever I'd like with the lineup. And then same with the bullpen. Now, obviously, we're not going to have a pitcher sit for eight or 10 days, and we're not going to have a pitcher throw for five, six days in a row. We're going to be smart with, with the usage. And I think as an organization, we, really, we do a really good job of balancing winning and the development of each player. And development is, of course, the, the goal in, in the minor leagues. You mentioned setting up players to succeed, but I assume you also want to challenge players and make them a little bit uncomfortable at times? Absolutely. I think that's the way that players grow. I think that's the way that players get better. And I think as a manager and as a coach and as a coordinator, you do have to look at you know, what this player is doing. If they're having a ton of success, depending on their mental capabilities, you, you need to push that player. You need to challenge that player and, and see how they do in an uncomfortable situation. If there's something that that player needs to do to have success in the big leagues that he's not doing right now, I think that's the hardest part for coaches and coordinators that are in the weeds with the players is a player's having success. Let's say they're hitting 300, but there's something that's a little bit off, whether it be their approach, whether it be their mechanics, that, yeah, they're having success at this level, but when they get to level X or when they get to the big leagues, it's, it's probably not going to work. And I think how you approach that player with that idea and with that plan is really important. Yeah. What, Blake, does a typical day look like for a manager at your minor league level? You know, when do you show up to the ballpark and what are the first things that you are doing? Yeah, I think everyone's different. But just to speak on myself, I get to the park pretty early. Probably should get there a little bit later. A lot of people say I spend too much time there. But I like to get there early. I like to take my time. Usually when I get there, the first thing I do is I'll kind of plan that day's schedule. And that goes off of how many games we've played the last few days. Were those games grueling? Do we have injuries? So on and so forth. Uh, once we get the schedule set up for the day, then, you know, we're looking at the lineup, we're looking at playing time and getting that set up. And then, you know, the players start arriving and they check the board for the lineup. They see what's going on pregame and we kind of get out there, we get to work, we do our early work. Um, our hitting coaches do a tremendous job making sure our hitters get what they need individually 
And then same thing on the pitching side. The pitchers will go out with the pitching coach, uh, maybe throw a flat ground or a side. And then we get together as a team and we'll go over the previous night's game and we'll go through our, our routine for that day, BP, defensive work, things of that such. And then we get ready for the game. And once the game is over, I assume that you are writing reports. Is, is that correct? Yeah, usually right after the game, just kind of write a report on what happened in that game and any thoughts we have personally on whether it be a situation in the game or a specific player's performance and whatnot. And, and all of our coaches will do that. Right. So once again, we're talking, you know, special sauce, so to speak, that you probably can't really into, go into detail of maybe an example of what you might send in. On, on a given day, you know, beyond what you just said? Um, no, it really is just just what happened in that night's game and anything particular that stood out. It's hard to give an exact example of what I would say, but you, you just kind of, you give what, what you see and you have conversations about what took place from that game. And I think as a, as a group, collectively, that's how we get better. Right. So maybe uh, a coordinator is in town and there's an effort to maybe, you know, make some sort of a change with the player. And part of your job will be to assess just how that adjustment is happening. You know, maybe it's, uh, you know, better plate discipline or, you know, something of that elk. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's spot on. That's exactly right. Yeah. Circling back, you know, to players specifically, how would you describe Curtis Mead? You know, one of my, you know, a player who really interests me in your system. Yeah, Curtis, I'm really excited and happy for Curtis. He really put himself on the map with this 2021 season. And the thing with Curtis is, you know, he's a really good hitter and he knows he's a good hitter. He really did a nice job of taking a step back and looking at what he needs to do to, to get to the big leagues. And not only get to the big leagues, but have success. And for someone at that age to be able to do that what was really impressive. He, you know, he came in and he knew that he asked, he asked, he came in, he asked, what do I need to do to get better? He was hitting 320 at the time. He comes in and, you know, defensively, he needed to get better. He knew that the arm strength needed to be something he needed to work on, the first step, things of that sort. And he would get out there and he'd get, he'd get after it. You know, we'd put a plan together. Our strength coach put a plan together. And we would get out there and he'd get to work. And he, he wanted to be out there early. He wanted to be there all day long, doing whatever it took for him to get better. So he was never satisfied with what he was doing. He was always hungry to get better. And that's how he's going to be the rest of his career. And I think that's why you're going to see Curtis do really well. And uh, he probably has the best accent on, on the team this, <laughs> this past season. Yeah, <laughs> I think he takes the cake for that one. Yeah, for those you know, who don't know, uh, Curtis Mead is actually from, from Australia, so... And I have chatted with him. Uh, he he definitely speaks uh, Australian, so to speak. Yeah, it's a strong accent. <laughs> yeah. A player who the Rays drafted in the first round last year out of high school uh, will presumably be in, in Charleston this coming season. At this point in time, how much do you know about Carson Williams? Yeah, Carson's really impressive. A lot of people, um, just in the short time he's been in the organization, uh, I've heard really good things about him as a shortstop, and I've also heard he can pitch a little bit. I haven't seen him play a ton in person, just with him being in, you know, the draft being later this year, and and we decided to keep a lot of our drafted players in Florida just to finish up the year since there wasn't a ton of time. Uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing him in spring training this year. I've heard nothing but great things, and uh, he's a, he's another exciting young talent that we have in the organization that will be fun to develop. 
I actually did not realize that that he had a pitching background as well. I think that when you first uh, began coaching, either coaching or maybe your first year as a manager, I think that you had uh, Brandon McKay on that team. Is that correct? Yes, I did have Brandon McKay. That was my first year in Hudson Valley as an assistant coach. And that was definitely a an experience for the organization, for our front office, our coordinators, and our manager, Craig Albernaz at the time, just to develop the best program that we thought would fit Brendan McKay. Obviously, you don't want to overuse him. And it's, it's different than college because you're playing every day. In college, you have the set schedule of three games on the weekend, one or two during the week, and a couple of off days sandwiched in between there. Uh, but Brendan was a lot of fun to be a part of, and he's a, he's a great kid and great teammate. Yeah. Do you feel that players can both pitch and be position players at the big league level? Or do you think that players like Shohei Ohtani are truly uh, unicorns? I think what we've seen with Shohei is, goes to show that he's he's a special breed. Uh, it's not that easy. You know, Brendan did it in college and made it look like a breeze. And, you know, it, it's been a challenge for him here in the minor leagues and, and up to the big leagues. And It's really hard. It's grueling. It's a lot on your body. Not to say that it can't be done, but I think seeing firsthand how hard it is really gives you appreciation for what Shohei is doing. There are not many Shohei Otanis in the world. Yeah, let's jumping uh, subjects again, Blake. You did not have any high profile prospects your first year as a manager. When Manny Acta was a guest on this podcast uh, fairly recently, actually, he talked about being about the same age as you when I think you got your first managerial job, I think at 25. He was maybe even a year younger. He had Billy Wagner as, as a first rounder. What do you remember about that first year, though, about coming in, you know, being as young as you were? You know, were you intimidated at all by anybody that you worked with? No, not intimidated. I think there, I don't think, I know there was a lot going on that first year that I was managing, but I think I was very fortunate to do it in the organization that I did it in. You know, when they approached me about it, they, they knew I was going to be kind of looking around like what's going on at some times, but they were okay with that. And and I think I was very fortunate because I was surrounded by really good people and really good baseball minds that, you know, wanted to help and they helped tremendously, whether it be, I know I'm going to leave somebody, leave someone out, but Craig Albernaz, Alejandro Frady, Michael Johns. Yeah. Mitch Lukovich. I mean, there's, there's a million of them, Bill Evers, but just the people I was around, they helped me tremendously. And they told me, look, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And I think when I was told that, it was kind of like, all right, we can breathe now. I'm, it's okay if I mess up because I know I was going to. But I wouldn't say I was ever intimidated. I think there were times where, you know, you're unsure and, and you're not sure what to do in, in certain situations. But I think that's the case with, with anything we do in life. I believe that Tommy Pham did a rehab stint uh, your first year as a manager, he probably would have been at least four or five years older than you. You know, do you recall meeting Tommy for the first time? <laughs> I recall it vividly. I was actually sitting in my office in Staten Island. We were playing the Yankees that night. And he walked in and introduced himself. And I was like, yeah, Tommy, like you're playing center field tonight. You're hitting second. Like, let me know if there's anything, anything you need. Here's the schedule. And he was extremely polite and, and look forward to it. And he asked a couple questions and was like, all right, let's roll. And went out there and 
played great and actually pushed a lot of our guys. He got on a couple guys for not like if there was a mistake made in the outfield and, and he 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 helped and he was he was fun to be to be around for the short time we had him. Yeah, another change of uh, of direction. Your father Barry reached Triple A in the Red Sox organization. Has he told you many good stories from that time in his life? Yeah, he has, um, and he's been he stayed really close today to a lot of his teammates that he played with. And, and they're pretty impressive, you know, from uh, Wade Boggs to Glenn Hoffman. So he has a lot of really good stories from, from when he was, you know, he and Wade Boggs were, were hitting wiffle balls in their hotel room off a, of, off a mattress and talking, hitting and, 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 and going over mechanics and getting in debates. And I think his hitting coordinator at the time he said was Ted Williams. So he and Ted would sit there, he said, and, and, and debate hitting and talk mechanics all, all day long. So there were some really cool stories that he told me from his point in time in the late 70s and early 80s. And his manager in Pawtucket, I believe, would have been Walpole Joe Morgan, you know, not to be confused with the, the second baseman. Walpole Joe ended up managing the Red Sox, and uh, he was quite the character. I don't know if your father has ever ever talked about him. All the time. He, he talks to, to Joe Morgan once a month, if not more, still to this day. And he'll, he'll put him on speakerphone and we'll both talk to him. And he's, he's hysterical. And just what he's been around in the game and, and the experiences he's had is you just kind of keep your mouth shut and you listen and, and laugh and follow along. But I think the, the funniest thing to me was my dad told me that when he was managing the Red Sox, he never changed his, his home phone number on purpose. So if there was a decision made in a game that a fan didn't like or, or didn't agree with, he would actually get calls on his personal phone from fans and he'd go over the situations in the game with them and tell them what he was thinking. Yeah. Have you considered doing the same, Blake? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that. <laughs> yeah. In today's day and age, that might be a little bit more dangerous than it was for uh, old Walpole Joe. True. Yeah, I want to hit you with some challenging, if not impossible, trivia. You know, regarding your uh, some of your father's former teammates. I don't know if you are familiar either with uh, Buddy Hunter or Roger LaFrancois, but they both hold small sample size distinctions in Red Sox history. You know, Ted Williams being involved in both. Do you want to take a stab at at what those were? What those are? I don't know. You have me stumped on this one. Now, I, I would have been gobsmacked had you actually known this. Uh, LaFrancois was a third-string catcher. He is the last Red Sox hitter to bat 400 in a season, the caveat being that he went four for 10. Uh, <laughs> and it's actually remarkable because he was on the roster the entirety of the season and only got the 10, 10 at-bats, which is you would never see in today's game. And the other, which is even more obscure, Buddy Hunter – has the second highest on base percentage in Red Sox history behind Ted Williams of for players of minimum of twenty games played. I think Buddy Hunter actually played in twenty two games. So Wow. Wow. Well thanks for schooling me on that. I would have never known that. I'll have to ask my dad. No, I, I think your dad probably doesn't know that and I would think that maybe one or two of the people listening to this podcast will know or maybe even care about that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, before we close here, we should maybe touch on, you know, on the Red Sox and, and the Hall of Fame, because we are talking on Wednesday morning. So David Ortiz was elected to the Hall of Fame, you know, last night. 
Do you have any, any memories of, of watching Ortiz? Oh, a lot of memories. Um, like you mentioned, my dad obviously played in AAA with the Red Sox. And being from Louisiana, we didn't really have a team to root for there. So we just became Red Sox fans. And we would always go up to Boston and try to catch a game. And so I followed David Ortiz. I followed the whole World Series against – or the ALCS against the Yankees when they came back down 3-0 and just still have some vivid memories of – of Ortiz coming up with the clutch hits. I thought he was one of the clutchest hitters of all time, not just on the Red Sox, but of all time. So that's probably what I remember most about Ortiz. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty fair to say that he, that he was Mr. Clutch. I'm thinking here, Blake, that you and your father being from Louisiana, he and uh, Ron Guidry must be of the same era. I don't know if your father ever got a chance to meet uh, Louisiana Lightning. Yeah, he does. He, he, he knew him very well. Yeah, he used to tell a lot of stories about Ron. Yeah, uh, you know, maybe not any great, you know, Ron Guidry stories in here, you know, trying to keep the uh, the Yankee fan listeners happy. <laughs> but you shared a lot of great stories, certainly, a lot of great information, Blake. So with that, thank you, you know, again for coming on to uh, Fangraphs Audio. And, you know, we can look forward to spring training, which is right around the corner. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Okay, and thanks everybody for listening to Fangrass Audio. This has been Fangrass Audio. Thank you to Blake Butera for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. Don't forget to check out that Fangrass shop, and also make sure to sign up for the Fangrass newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on all the cool things we have going on over at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. We hope you have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.